One of my favorite parts about church ministry, about being in the church, is hearing the testimony of people when they're saved, uh, when they're baptized. Uh, I'm sure you have a similar tradition here that when people are baptized, they give their testimony of how they came to know Christ. Um, Am I wrong? You guys do that in this church? Um, What a joy. And uh, I miss that in Italy because baptisms are few and far between. And when you don't speak the language, you can't necessarily understand their testimony. Uh, We're we're past that point, but in the beginning, we didn't get to hear those testimonies. And boy, the the conversion of an Italian is is a miracle indeed. And what a, we love to hear people testify what God has done in their life. Why? Because it it reminds us of what God did in our life, and it makes us thankful. It, it fuels our hope in our own evangelism, that we might hear somebody who's living in the same sins converted that our family members are living in. And it gives us hope that we need to continue to be faithful. And so we love to hear the story of conversion. We love to hear of how people come to know Christ. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to hear uh, perhaps one of the most miraculous conversions in the New Testament. Uh, All conversions are miraculous. Um, But this one in particular uh, sticks out in the pages of Scripture. And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 19 and the conversion of Zacchaeus. Let's read read, uh, Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful to be here tonight, to be under the ministry of your word. We're thankful to you uh, for the songs that we've sung. We're thankful to you for the day that we've had. And I would ask that you would use your word tonight in our hearts that we might rejoice in, in this conversion. And I would pray for anybody here who has come into this room who is yet unconverted, who does not yet know Christ, that tonight might be that night that they come to know him. In Jesus' name, amen. The most important verse in this text is verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the key point of this text. It's not unclear. I know you have a seminary here. There's been in here studying to learn how to preach. It's very clear. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. No matter uh, how sinful sinners may be, Christ has come to seek and to save sinners. And that's what I want to talk about this evening. And in the conversion of Zacchaeus, God intends for us to be impressed by the display of his saving power. 
Jesus didn't come into the world to be just a good teacher or a healer or to solve all the political problems of the world and to reign in righteousness like he will come in his second coming. But he came to seek and to save ruined sinners. Ruined sinners. Jesus has many names in the New Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But above all names, his name is Jesus. Meaning he will save his people from their sins. Christ is the Savior of sinners. And and that is the great theme of our text. It is the great theme of the Gospel of Luke. That is the joy of God to recover lost sinners. Perhaps you remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke when the angels appear to the shepherds. What do they say? They say, I bring to you good news of great joy for some of the people, for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the Gospel of Luke ends with Christ commissioning his disciples saying... I had to suffer, I had to die, I had to, be, I had to resurrect, I had to rise again. So that repentance for the forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed among the nations. Christ is the great savior of sinners. That is the theme of the gospel of Luke. But it's also the theme of the whole Bible. It's the theme of the whole Bible. That God, by nature, by disposition, is a savior. That he, he pursues sinners Perhaps you remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed and they sinned. What happens? They hide themselves. Their sin drives them away from God. And who comes looking after them? Where are you? Is what God says. He comes and, and looks for these first, the first man and the first woman who have fallen into sin. And this is what Christ has done. He has left his glory in heaven. He has humbled himself and he stepped onto this sinful earth, to seek and to save lost sinners. And that's good news. That's good news. He ascended to the cross. He resurrected. And that he will be praised one day in heaven because he has ransomed men from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the conversion of Zacchaeus here serves to illustrate that truth to us. It serves to illustrate that truth. It's not just a song that you sang uh, in Sunday school or your kids sang in Sunday school or that you teach your kids. This is an amazing conversion. And it shows us this wonderful truth that Christ's heart burns with, with, a, with a single focus to seek and, and save lost sinners, no matter how lost they are or how impossible their salvation seems. And so we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 19 with Jesus walking through Jericho. In chapter 18, he's just healed a blind man, blind Bartimaeus, who is crying out to Jesus, who is blind. And in Luke chapter 19, as we've seen already in our reading of the text, we have a man who is trying to see Jesus, who can see physically, but cannot see yet spiritually. And as Jesus is walking through Jericho, he has two divine appointments to keep here. One of them is obvious. He must meet Zacchaeus so that he might save him. But there's a second and more uh, subtle appointment that he's trying to keep. And I'll just refer you back to Luke 9. You don't have to go there. But in Luke chapter 9, something changes in Jesus' ministry. And it says in Luke chapter 9 verse 51 that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. 
About midway through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus locks his eyes on another divine appointment. He must go to Jerusalem. Why? To be rejected and to suffer on the cross for our sins. And nothing was going to hold him back from that. In Luke 9, he sets his resolve and he starts going towards Jerusalem to suffer crucifixion on a Roman cross. And in one great act of his death and resurrection, countless people from all of history would be saved. And so his other appointment that he's trying to keep as he walks through Jericho is the cross. And he has this one last important meeting on his calendar before he gets to Jerusalem. And that's with Zacchaeus. He's, we, we're here in Jericho, about 12 miles from Jerusalem, and just days away from the crucifixion. And so this evening, I want to unfold for us what might be perhaps Zacchaeus' testimony, if he was going to be baptized. And so what I want to do is walk through this text this morning, uh, or this evening, explaining uh, Zacchaeus' conversion. And then at the end, I'm going to make a few points of application just to encourage you uh, from this text. And so what we'll look first at is Zacchaeus' sin Then we'll look at Zacchaeus the sinner's curiosity, then the sinner's summoning, the sinner's repentance, and then the sinner's savior. So first let's look at the sinner's sin, and we see in verse 2, we're introduced to Zacchaeus here. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. We don't know uh, exactly why they put the name Zacchaeus. Perhaps that means that uh, Luke put him in because people knew who Zacchaeus was. Church history tells us he was actually the pastor one of the pastors of the church uh, in Caesarea, in the early church, uh, to actually be followed by Cornelius the centurion from the book of Acts. Um, Whatever the reason Luke actually names Zacchaeus, we find out that first he was a chief tax collector, and second he was rich. I'm assuming you know something about tax collectors in the Bible. They were the scum of society. No one wanted to associate with a tax collector. In the Roman Empire, private entrepreneurs would bid to become tax collectors. It wasn't a job that that you could just get, like fill out an application for and become a tax collector. You had to bid. You had to invest your own money, much like a, um, a contractor would bid for a job and invest in trying to present a plan. You had to bid with your own money to become a tax collector. And th- these tax collectors would collect... Uh, Taxes like sales tax, tolls, customs, and duties. And so Zacchaeus would have been a private entrepreneur, and a private entrepreneur in Jericho, no less, which was one of the three main tax centers in the land of Israel. So he was doing pretty well for himself. Uh, He had won with his own bid to become a tax collector, and uh, not only would he have had to recuperate the money that he paid to become a tax collector, he would have to get more money to live off of. And uh, there was no regulation on what he actually charged. And so in this process of trying to regain their money, the whole system went corrupt. Extortion, um, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of financial sins, that the, the fraud, bribery, that the Jews would have considered robbery. The Jews would have considered he's robbing his, he's working for the Roman government and he's robbing his own people uh, of sin. And so these abuses led to tax collectors being um, absolutely despised in the nation of Israel. In fact, they belonged to the same uh, category as prostitutes. This man was a sinner. And not only was he a tax collector, but he was a, a chief tax collector, which means he was at the top of the pyramid. He had people working under him, fueling. Uh, his, his income. 
And so this man was very rich. Now, I ask myself, as I study this text, where it says at the end of verse 2, he was rich. When you see the phrases like that, we have to ask ourselves, what on earth is the author getting at here? Why is he communicating this? Isn't it enough just to say he's a chief tax collector and we would all know this man is filthy rich? Luke adds that, and I think he adds that if we go back to Luke chapter 18, helps us answer that question. In Luke chapter 18, we find Jesus' encounter with another rich man, the rich young ruler. Uh, The rich young ruler who uh, responds in an absolutely different way than Zacchaeus to Christ. But we can see in Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 22, Jesus is talking to this rich man. And he says to him, in, in verse 22 of chapter 18, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Luke adds this note about Zacchaeus being rich to connect it back to what he's just written about the rich young ruler to underscore how impossible the conversion of a rich man is. The tug of riches on the human heart is an impossible thing to give up. Humanly speaking, the, the love of comfort, the love of wealth, it's impossible to give up. And so when Luke adds this note, that, and when he puts this story of Zacchaeus' conversion here, he's showing us the mightiness of Christ, the might of Christ to save sinners who are impossible to save. In a sense... Jesus is flexing his his muscles to show that nothing can impede the saving power of God. When God sets his gaze on somebody to save them, it doesn't matter the depth of the sin that they're involved in or what kind of grip that has on their heart. Christ can save these people. And so Luke is intending for us to be impressed by this, this, this display of God's saving power. By putting the conversion of a rich man right after statements in chapter 18 that say it's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man to be saved. But with God all things are possible. And what we see in the conversion of Zacchaeus is the camel coming through the eye of the needle. The rich man comes through the eye of the needle. Something impossible. And so that's the sinner's sin. Let's look next at the the sinner's sin. Curiosity in verse 3. So we have Zacchaeus here in verse 3. He's, very, he's a very curious man. He's trying to see. It says he's trying to see who Jesus was. Literally, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. The text doesn't exactly explain to us what the motive of his curiosity was, but I think there's more in the text to help us get a little bit deeper as to why he was so curious. Of course he had heard of the miracles of Jesus. In fact, Jesus had just healed a blind man as he entered Jericho. And so, of course, Zacchaeus just wanted, he was curious, who is this man, Jesus? I don't think it's far-fetched 
that perhaps the word had spread around tax collectors that there's a man who is the friend of tax collectors who does not mind whining and dining with um, tax collectors. I mean, if you're a tax collector, you're already an outcast. You're used to that. But here's somebody who actually wants to spend time with sinners. But I think there's something else here as well that we need to understand. That Zacchaeus uh, wanted to see Jesus. Look at the great lengths that he goes to. Um, they're not, this is not normal. He was unable because of the crowd. He's, he's small in stature. It says, he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. Uh, look, note the repetition of the word see. Verse 3, he's trying to see. Verse 4, he ran ahead in order to see him. Uh, this man is being driven by something internally to see, to see Christ. And he's going to go to whatever length he needs to, to see Christ, including exposing himself to shame by running ahead, climbing up in a tree, probably grabbing up his robes uh, to see Christ. He was relentless. He wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to see Christ. I mean, can you picture this short guy running out ahead, the man who's responsible for all the taxes in the whole city, he's embarrassing himself in front of these people in order to see Christ. And, and so I would conclude from that that there's something internal uh, to, uh, to Zacchaeus that is driving him. Perhaps that the Holy Spirit is placing him in God's sovereignty into the right position And another thing that makes me think this, if you look in verse 10, the key verse, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The same word in verse uh, 3 appears where it says Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus. It says he was seeking to see Jesus. So here in this passage, you have Zacchaeus seeking to see Jesus, and you have Jesus seeking to save Zacchaeus. And I think what what this is explaining to us is that we have a man here who is being prepared by the Holy Spirit because we know that no one seeks after God. There's no one who righteous. There's no one who does good. Not even one. No one seeks after God unless God first pushes him in that direction. Perhaps he's being driven by a sense of his sin and his alienation from God. Perhaps he feels the emptiness and his filth and he knew that Jesus wasn't afraid to associate with somebody as filthy as him. But is it extraordinary that we would see Zacchaeus here seeking to see Jesus? Next, we see the sinners summoning. And as with any testimony of conversion, it must be Christ who casts the decisive look. In verse 5, uh, we see that Jesus comes to the place where Zacchaeus is. He's up in the tree, and Jesus comes right to him, and he, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Today I must stay with you. Zacchaeus could have sought to see Jesus all that he wanted. But unless Jesus had come to him, it would have been absolutely, absolutely hopeless. Zacchaeus thinks he's on a quest, but Jesus is actually on a quest to save Zacchaeus. And so God has put him in the right, in the right place, and Zacchaeus hopes to see Jesus, and say, the Savior comes right to him, walks, makes a beeline over to him. And notice uh, the similar word. We've already seen the word see appear in verse 3 and in verse 4 and in verse 5 now, the similar word. Jesus himself looks up 
to Zacchaeus, he casts this decisive look. The one that all of society had despised wasn't despised by the Savior. How thankful we should be because it's the same thing with us. That Christ looked at us in our sin and our filth. Just like he does here with Zacchaeus. He had seen Zacchaeus in eternity past with the eye of his election and his predestination. And here in history, in the unfolding of time, he comes to Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. This is a matter of urgency. Get down out of that tree. He personally summons him down with his name, Zacchaeus, showing he knew who he was. He knew exactly who he was. And, and it wasn't just a choice. It wasn't, uh, Zacchaeus, you know, maybe you might want to think about coming down. No, Zacchaeus, get down. I must stay at your house. I must be at your house. It's divinely mandated. You, you must get down. I must stay with you. We're not just going to have lunch. I must go and be with you at your house. Probably stay the night there. And in this phrase, Jesus is expressing his desire to fellowship with a sinner. This is the heart of the Savior. That he is gracious to us in our sin. In the ancient world, if you sat down at somebody's table, you were expressing a desire for fellowship with that person. That's why the, 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 Jew, the Jews were so upset that Jesus would go and spend uh, time with sinners. That he would eat and drink with them. He was the friend of sinners. Uh, that's what he was doing with Zacchaeus. He was going and saying, I, I want to have fellowship with you, Zacchaeus. This is the great love of the Savior for sinners. That sin is not an impediment to the Savior. So often we might see somebody, oh, that person over there, you know what they do? You know what kind of sin they're involved in? That doesn't, it's not an obstacle to Christ to go spend time with them in his love for them and Perhaps you've come tonight, um, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, and you're suffering under the weight of a guilty conscience, wondering, can Christ ever take me? Can Christ ever accept me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Christ isn't afraid of sinners. That's who he came to save. He accepts them in his love. He welcomes them. He didn't come to call righteous people. You don't have to improve your life to come to Christ. You have to abandon your sin and trust him to save you. If you're a sinner, you came to the right place tonight because Jesus is a great Savior. And that's what we see. He comes right to Zacchaeus and tells him to come down out of that tree. And we see in verse, uh, in, in verse 6, as we, as we continue to go on, we see uh, Zacchaeus, the beginning of Zacchaeus' repentance, the sinner's repentance in verses uh, 6 through 8, that um, there's no delay Zacchaeus' obedience, he hurries, he comes down. He doesn't, well, wait, I kind of like it up here in this tree. Uh, no, he hurries, he comes down. And what we see in Zacchaeus' response here is, is what should characterize every conversion to Christ. Uh, we see here a, a, a sinner who comes down to the tree and receives Christ gladly. Obedience. Reception of the Savior and joy, joy. He did it all gladly. He was happy to have Christ. He, he welcomed Christ not just into his home, but into his ruined life. 
saving sinners not only brings great immense joy, uh, immense joy to God, but it brings immense joy to the sinner. He does this all gladly, with joy. Well, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus had tried to see Jesus, as we've seen. Jesus had looked at Zacchaeus in verse 5. And in verse 7, we see somebody else who's doing some looking too. In verse 7, it says, when they saw it. My goodness, somebody else is watching here. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, the crowds, saying, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Self-righteous crowds. They weren't too happy. We shouldn't be surprised by this response in verse 7. They're upset again that Jesus has gone to save another sinner. Of course they responded this way. They hated tax collectors. But what we see in Zacchaeus' repentance is an exoneration of, of Jesus, um, of G, what Jesus has done. Because Zacchaeus, Jesus has not just gone to be the guest of a sinner because he approves of his sin. Of course he doesn't approve of what Zacchaeus has done. And Zacchaeus exonerates that. In verse 8, he says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. Half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. He expresses his repentance. Do you see how quickly his heart is transformed? All conversion is accompanied by true repentance. In fact, Zacchaeus' repentance doesn't just include, Oh Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done, please forgive me. But he actually is willing to demonstrate the fruit of that repentance and make restitution for his sin. Half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. This is an over-the-top kind of repentance. Because the rabbis would have only required 20%. And Zacchaeus is giving 50%. He's going beyond, 30% beyond what would have been required of him, according to the book of Leviticus. So he's exceeding any expectation by giving half of his possessions to the poor. And and he says, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, implication, I have defrauded many people of many things. He says, I'll give back four times as much. The Mosaic law would have required restitution for his robbery of only 20% more. They would have required him to give back 120% of what he had taken. And here Zacchaeus is saying, I'm not just giving back 120%. I'm giving back 400% of what I took. He so badly wants to be cleared of the sins that he's committed. His repentance exceeds any expectation. the same thing be said of you? Is there evidence of genuine repentance in your life? The next, the next step in this conversion, or the next point that we want to talk about as we talk about Zacchaeus' testimony is his Savior, the sinner's Savior. We've already talked a good deal about Christ, but in verses 9 and 10, why did all this happen? We come to the crux of this text. Why was Zacchaeus saved? Why is it that Jesus would go to him? And it says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Deliverance of sins came because he was a son of Abraham. We could spend a lot of time unpacking what this means, son of Abraham. I just want to give you two points to think about what it means to be a son of Abraham. First of all, or three points, it means that 
it wasn't Zacchaeus is a Jew. He's not saying because Zacchaeus was a Jew, he's been saved because he was had a blood relationship to Abraham. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's first. He's exhibited similar faith to what Abraham exhibited in the Old Testament. But there's also a, a, a greater principle here because if you go back to Genesis where God calls Abraham, he promises him a multitude of descendants that we know uh, in, from Galatians 3 that those would be descendants, spiritual descendants who have put their faith in Christ. But the very fact that there was a promise of a multitude of descendants means that God had in his mind already who these people would be. And so, so Jesus is saying that salvation has come to your house because I promised Abraham a multitude of descendants, and you're one of those people that I chose to be one of those descendants. It's a, it's a, it's a subtle reference to the doctrine of election. Zacchaeus, you're saved because I chose you. And today, salvation has come to your house. In eternity past, you were chosen, and I promised to Abraham that I would bless his descendants, and, and you've believed, and you are one of these descendants Salvation has come to your house today because of this. Who, who went to Jesus's or to Zacchaeus's house? Jesus. So who is salvation? It's not salvation isn't just a what; it's a who. Salvation came to, to Zacchaeus's house in the person of Christ because he's the Savior. So that's what he's saying. Salvation has come to this house. It doesn't depend on your nationality, but that you would exhibit the faith of Abraham. And we see Zacchaeus has done that. And that the whole mission of Christ is summed up in verse 10, that he came to seek and to save lost sinners. That's our Savior. And I think from, from this principle that Christ came to seek and to save lost sinners, uh, we can draw four encouragements. We can draw four encouragements tonight. I just want to close with briefly. Four encouragements that we can draw. There's many things that we could talk about that would encourage us from this text, but I just want to encourage you with four, four truths. First, we have an encouragement to thankfulness, an encouragement to thankfulness. Like any testimony, I can't, I can't help but look at this text and see myself in this text, to see Christ coming to me and looking me in my sin and forgiving me. It reminds me of my conversion. Do you remember when Christ looked at you? Do you remember when he called you to be one of God's children? Do you remember when you heard the gospel? I remember, for me, my coming to Christ was, a, was a, more of a process than an instant. And I just remember calling out to Christ to save me because I was so sinful. Calling out, calling out, calling out, Jesus, save me, Jesus, save me. So, so, so many times to come to the point where I realized, wait a minute, I'm believing in Christ and he's looking at me. He saved me. I don't need to. I, need, I can stop asking him to save me, uh, in that sense. And I just want to encourage you to be thankful that God has done this in your life. If you're in Christ tonight, <clears throat> second, we have an encouragement to conversion. An encouragement to conversion. I, I don't know all of you. I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. And I, I think in a group uh, this big, there are people in here who don't know Christ. Uh, maybe you're the person that Rick mentioned this morning in his sermon who comes week in, week out. You're good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of guilt. You're full of, uh, you, you know in your own heart that you don't know Christ. Or perhaps you're curious, but you realize that you have violated God's law. 
that you have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory, don't let your sin hinder you from coming to Christ. Perhaps you're here and you are overwhelmed with a sense of your filthiness and your guilt. And, and that's starting to, to make you wonder, can Christ, will God ever even accept me if I come to him? Can I tell you that Christ promises that all who come to him, he will not cast out. That he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ is very acquainted with the sin of sinners because he is the Savior. And so I would encourage you to come to Christ, abandon your sin, abandon it, and trust in the provision that Christ has made on the cross for your sin. And be convinced that he will accept you by the empty tomb. Because in the empty tomb, you see Christ no longer under the penalty for sin. And that gives you hope that you don't have to face the penalty for your sin because it's already been paid for. Christ has overcome the grave. Do you really think that Christ went to the cross and and suffered at the hands of sinful men and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All to not accept sinners? He will accept you, and I encourage you that you would come to him today. As Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house. The scripture says that there's no better day for salvation than today, and so I would encourage you that today you would come to Christ. That you wouldn't wait for tomorrow. You don't know what sins you might commit between now and tomorrow that might harden your heart from Christ. And so I wouldn't put your head down on the pillow tonight without trusting in Christ. If you do, you haven't listened to the burden of this text. There is an urgency that I am calling you to tonight that you need to know Christ. You need to be saved. And so come to him today. We see an encouragement to evangelism. Encouragement to evangelism. Christ's heart is to seek and save the lost. And I wonder if you can say that that's your heart. I wonder if you can say that it's your heart to seek and save the lost. I've noticed something within, within the church that we can tend to struggle with. And it's a good struggle because we all love to be around other Christians. We love to be with other, with other believers. It's a great thing to be in fellowship. God commands it. But sometimes we forget about the people on the outside of the church and we don't go to them. Can I encourage you maybe to start having lunch with your coworkers? Maybe start a Bible club in your neighborhood for the kids in your neighborhood. Um, I don't know what it, what it might look like in your life. Um, maybe try an extra conversation with an unbelieving family member. But put yourself in the pathway of unbelievers and ask God to open up opportunities. And I can tell you from experience, he loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer. His heart must be your heart. Well, finally, we have an encouragement to missions. And I know what you're probably thinking, Massimo, this text does not say anything about missions. The word nations doesn't appear in this text. You're right. Um, but if you keep going in the Gospel of Luke after Jesus dies and resurrects, um, the same heart continues, and I've already alluded to it in Luke 24, where Christ gives the great commission of the Gospel of Luke, and he says that uh, we must take the message of forgiveness of sins to the nations. And so the same heart that saved Zacchaeus is the same heart that is sending people to other countries to take the gospel where there's no witness. And, and some of you have Christ's heart for evangelism. I don't doubt it. I'm sure in this church that's the case. I know your pastor. I know the example he sets for you. But there's some of you who can't help but think about people in other countries. 
And I believe that in the same way that Jesus had seen Zacchaeus in eternity past and and intervened in history to save him, that in the same way God has seen a countless multitude of people from every nation, tribe and tongue, from all over the world. And he uses us as his instruments to go and tell them the gospel. I've seen these cities in Italy, and so I would encourage you to give thought to how you might be God's instrument to reach these people. And uh, in closing, we'll just again ask that you would uh, pray for us in Italy as we seek to do that. It's hard soil. Um, but we, as Paul says in Second Timothy 2, we endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. And, and that's what we want to do in Italy. And I pray that perhaps God might put that on your heart in some way tonight. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to you that you have opened our eyes to our Savior. We're thankful to know Christ. Lord, what an amazing thing it is that you saved us of all people. And what an amazing thing it is that you would use us to reach those who don't know you. I pray that you would use Mission Road Bible Church for that purpose in Kansas City and and beyond that sinners might come to a knowledge of the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.